Well, good morning to you all. Another month has flown by, and this being the fourth Sunday of the month, we take a break from our series in Exodus uh, to look at a question from the field of Christian apologetics. And this morning's question is as old as Christianity itself. Is Jesus really the only way? That's one way of putting the question, but you may have heard it in a whole host of other statements. I believe religions are just different ways to the same God. Perhaps you've heard that from someone you know. Or I don't follow any particular religion. I just combine bits from all of them. Or I don't think God is limited to any particular religion. Or it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, as long as you're not hurting anyone and it's right for you. Well, what about this one? I'm sure you would have heard this one before. Well, that might be true for you. It's great that it's true for you, but it's not true for me. You heard that one before? Or, of course, the old classic, Christians are just so intolerant. All of these are essentially statements or questions addressing the same basic claim of Christianity, that of the exclusivity of Christ or of Jesus being the only way. You know, there's a very old and a very well-known fable that comes out of India that has been reused and retold in so many different traditions over so many different years that its precise origins and details are difficult to know for sure. It's supposed to teach a religious truth and I am sure that most of you would have heard it in one form or another before. The story is about six blind men who are led into the court of a Raja, a Raja being an, an Indian king. And in the courtyard there they encounter for the first time an elephant. The first man reaches out and what he happens to come across is the side of the elephant. Must have been a relatively tall blind man. But he comes across the side of the elephant and it's massive and sturdy and he feels along its length. And he concludes, this elephant must be somewhat like a wall. Second man reaches out and what he happens to grab is the tusk of the elephant and he feels along its smooth length and he reaches the tip and he concludes why this elephant is very much like a sword. The third man, as he's reaching out, is hit by the trunk of the elephant and as he grabs it, it writhes about and his conclusion is my, this elephant is much like a snake. And you get the idea. The next man grasping the sturdy legs of the elephant understands that an elephant is very much like a tree trunk. The fifth man, who must have been extremely tall, grabs onto the flapping ears of the elephant and concludes why an elephant is very much like a fan. And the final man is hit by the tail swinging of the elephant. And as he grabs it, he concludes that an elephant is a lot like a rope. And so each one is convinced of their conclusion and they begin to argue with one another about what it is that is in front of them. 
And hearing all the commotion in the courtyard, the Raja steps out onto the balcony and he looks at the scene below him. And he begins to inform the six blind men that each of them was only describing a very small part of the magnificent creature that stands in front of them. And the implied lesson here, of course, is that all religions are essentially touching on the same fundamental truth, but that each individual only understands a small part of the whole and all of them are blind to the complete picture. It's a nice story. And in a world where no one seems to want to say anyone is wrong, it is also a very appealing story. And this has been part of its attraction for so many years. The story raises three important questions that we're going to take a look at today. And the first one is literally the elephant in the room. Aren't we all touching on the same magnificent beast? Sure, the ways in which we might experience or express things may differ, but aren't all religions basically the same? Many, many people have bought into this idea that all religions are basically describing different truths about the same God or that all roads essentially lead to the same destination. And people who hold this view argue that the exclusivity, exclusivity in Christianity or in any other religion for that matter is just unnecessary. They might concede that yes, worshipping Satan is not the same as worshipping God or that atheism stands apart from the major religions, but everything else kind of gets grouped into this amorphous mass, this big grey area, um, and they, they're not really very sure about any differences between any of the other religions. Most of the major religions have some sense of a being who is greater than ourselves, beyond human, and most have disciplines or values that believers strive to adhere to. However, even at their very most basic level, there are enormous differences between the world's religions. Islam, Judaism and Christianity all believe that there is only one God, but not all religions hold even to this most basic fundamental claim. Hinduism allows for countless deities and Buddhism rejects the existence of a personal God. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you will find plenty of differences on many, many key issues. What is God like? How is one saved? Who is Jesus? What happens after you die? All religions are not basically the same. In fact, their differences are quite pronounced. Resurrection is quite different to incarnation. Striving for your own spiritual perfection is quite different to a relationship based not on your own efforts, but on what Christ has done for you. Jesus says the Messiah is radically different to Jesus the prophet or the teacher. The second question follows on from the first. 
Some would say, in fact, I would argue today that many would say, well, it doesn't matter what each man imagines the elephant to be. Whatever it is, it's true for him. Or to put it in terms that you're perhaps more familiar with, it might be true for you, and it's great that it's true for you, but it's not true for me. Maybe what I believe is different to what you believe, but it's all relative. And that's the question at the heart of this argument. Is truth indeed relative? Let's suppose that I believe that the world is flat because from where I stand, it looks like it's flat. I look out that window, I can see a horizon. I look out that window, I can see a horizon. And probably if I had a window behind me and I looked out it, I could see a horizon. So based on all of the evidence before me, I believe that the earth is flat. But let's suppose that Pastor Glenn thinks that my flat earth is a ridiculous concept because surely, he argues, if the world was flat, somebody would have fallen off the edge of it by now. No, he is convinced that the world is not flat. The world, he thinks, is like two pyramids which have been put together into a, a perfect sort of octahedron shape, two points at the top and the big part in the middle, the top and the bottom points are called the North and the South Pole. That's why they're called poles, he says. And the bit in the middle where they're stuck together, that's the equator. He's convinced that the world looks like two pyramids stuck together. It's perfectly sensible, he says. But Pastor Bruce thinks we are both ignorant Everyone, he says, knows that the earth is a perfect sphere. And he's sure of it because he took his grandchildren to the museum and they had a model there and it was a perfect sphere, so it must be true. Three very different proposals about the shape of the earth. Is it possible that they can all be true? If I'm correct and the world is flat, is it possible for Glenn and Bruce to also be correct? Of course it's not. It's no more possible for an octahedron or a sphere, both of which are 3D shapes, to be flat than it is for something which is flat to have three-dimensional shape. If the world is flat, it cannot also be a three-dimensional shape. Therefore, if any one of us is correct, the other two must be incorrect. It is logically possible for all of us to be wrong and for the earth to be some other shape, but it is not logically possible for all of us to be right because we've all put forward different options and if any one of them is correct, the other two are ruled out. Now, it's a silly example. Of course, I don't think the world is flat any more than Pastor Glenn thinks it is two pyramids stuck together. But we do hope that Pastor Bruce thinks that it is a sphere and that he has some sort of better reasoning than having just seen it at the museum. We laugh and we think it is silly to apply this kind of reasoning to what we believe about the shape of the earth. Yet that's exactly the type of reasoning that is frequently applied 
to what we believe about God. When it comes to religion, we like to think that the truth is all relative. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. We can both be right. Yet in reality, it's no more sensible to say that all religions are right than it is to say that all views about the shape of the earth are right because truth is exclusive. It is not relative. And so we must examine the claims and seek out the truth. And when it comes to Christianity, the key truth that we need to seek out is the truth about the resurrection of Christ because that is what all of Christianity hangs on. And we've looked at that in past sessions on apologetics. So if all religions are not the same and truth is exclusive, not relative, are the exclusive claims of Christianity tantamount to intolerance? Are Christians really just being intolerant? Well, to answer that question, we first of all need to look at what is tolerance? The Oxford Dictionary defines tolerance as the ability or willingness to tolerate the existence of opinions or behaviours that one dislikes or disagrees with. Imagine a family sitting down for Christmas dinner. Old Uncle Jimmy is a vocal National Party supporter from way back. Cousin Josh and his new girlfriend are very active members of the Greens. And the rest of the family is pretty much split 50-50 Liberal and Labor in their voting preferences. Each one of them thinks that the others are all wrong. But they can all sit down together and enjoy Christmas dinner as a family. That's because they tolerate one another's political opinions even though they don't agree with them. That is tolerance as the dictionary defines it, but that is not how we see the word being applied in the context of religious belief today. Increasingly these days, in the context of religious belief, tolerance means you must not only put up with behaviour and opinions that you don't agree with, you must tolerate them, you must also accept the other person's views as being true or legitimate. If you don't, you're labelled intolerant or judgmental. And intolerant or judgmental is apparently about as politically incorrect as you can get. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. In verses 13 to 14, you'll find these words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, he says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. According to Jesus, there are two options, narrow gate and narrow road leading to life, or wide gate and wide road leading to destruction. Two roads and each person must choose one or the other. 
Many, says Jesus, will enter through the wide gate and travel the broad road, but only a few will find the narrow gate and travel the narrow road. Yet this is the road he urges his disciples to take. But somewhere in this modern rhetoric of religious tolerance where truth is relative and everyone is right, the two roads that Jesus describes have kind of blurred into one. There isn't a narrow road that leads to life and a broad road that leads to destruction. There's only one road and everyone's on it and it leads wherever you want it to go. I think that road leads to eternal life. Heaven's where that road heads for me. But my fellow traveller thinks he's coming back for another shot at life on earth. So his road is kind of circular. Someone else is heading to paradise. Still another's going nowhere because he thinks that the road just ends and that's it. It's a nonsense because these travellers cannot all be right because truth, as we have seen, is not relative. Matthew 7.1 is increasingly becoming the go-to verse for those that, describe, that subscribe to this brand of tolerance. Matthew 7.1 reads, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Christians are so judgmental, they say. Doesn't your Bible say not to judge? Did Jesus really say that? Well, yes, he did. But he said it in the context of a whole passage about judging others. While this verse is fast becoming one of the most frequently quoted passages of scripture, particularly by non-Christians, it is also quickly becoming one of the most misused and abused passages of scripture. In its context, the passage is warning about how we evaluate a person's character. It is a warning about making judgments in a hypocritical, condemning or self-righteous way. Verse 2 says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you're going to judge someone harshly, expect that you too will be judged harshly. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 5 tells us to remove the plank from our own eyes so that we can see clearly before we move the speck from our brother's eye. Judge yourself before you judge others. And most of us aren't very good at doing that objectively. But that is what we're called to do. Take a personal inventory before you go casting judgment on someone else. Interestingly, most people who would cite Matthew 7.1 as evidence that Christians should not judge anyone fail to notice the commands to judge that are contained within that passage. Verses 5, 6 and 15 to 16 of the passage Verse 5, once we have removed the plank from our own eyes, then we can remove the speck from our brothers. Verse 6 exhorts Christians not to give to dogs what is sacred or cast pearls before swine, meaning teach 
in accordance with the capacity of the learner. But to do that implies making a judgment about the capacity of the learner. Verse 15 tells us to watch out for false prophets and verse 16 tells us how to make a judgment or to determine whether or not they are false prophets. By their fruit, you will recognise them. And in the middle of this block of teaching on judging others, we find the words of Jesus about the narrow and wide gates and immediately before them, in 7 verse 12, we find these very wise and very well-known words. So in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. And that, I think, defines how we should approach this issue of tolerance. We do not, in fact, we should not, assume that all claims are equally true because that's an illogical position to hold. But we must assume that all persons are equal and treat them in the way that we ourselves would like to be treated. Our judgments must not be hypocritical, condemning or self-righteous because Jesus warns us against that and because none of us would like to be treated that way ourselves. True tolerance is a very good thing. The world needs it in abundance. But being tolerant does not mean that we have to agree with everything everyone says. And nor do they have to agree with anything that we say. But we do have to treat one another with respect and with the dignity befitting of one made in the image of Christ. Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. I want to return now to the story of the blind men and the elephant, and I want us to think for a moment about how the blind men in the story might ever really come to know the truth about the magnificent creature that they are touching. Clearly, their lack of vision is at the heart of the problem here. They're blinded. And because of their blindness, they cannot see the truth. How can they ever really know the truth while they remain blinded? Well, if they were wearing blindfolds, we'd simply remove the blindfolds and they would see what was before them. But their blindness is real and they are unable to do anything about it. And ironically, the answer in this story that is meant to teach us about religious pluralism is that a king, the Raja, steps out onto the balcony and into the realm of the blind men to communicate to them a truth about their encounter in the courtyard. And Jesus has done that very same thing for us. Blinded by our own sin, we are unable to grasp the truth because we are unable to relate to God in that state. And so we grope around in the darkness seeking to know God. Knowing God or knowing anyone for that matter implies relationship. 
and sin destroys relationships. Cheat on your spouse, lie to a friend, steal from a classmate, and relationships will start to crumble. These are human relationships, relationships between two sinful people. Other humans might not like your sin. They may be hurt or offended by it, but God cannot tolerate it because he is holy and perfect. And so sin puts that barrier between us and God and it makes us like the blind men in the story, groping about, unable to grasp the truth because we're unable to relate to God. Damaged relationships are difficult to restore. You've probably had that experience yourself. It requires confession and repentance on the part of the offender and it requires the offended party to be willing to accept or bear the consequences of the other person's sin and offer forgiveness. And God has chosen to do that for us through Jesus Christ. He stepped into our realm, took on human nature and yet remained sinless. He bore the consequences of our sin and it is in him that we find forgiveness and through him that we are reconciled to God. The sin that blinded us is, is dealt with and we can know the truth. Jesus is the king who has stepped into the realm of the blind men, enabling them to know the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 16, 14 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusivist claim. I am the way, he said. And if Jesus is the way, then it follows that there can't be another way. And just in case there was any doubt about that claim, Jesus clarifies, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's a claim that is repeated countless times in the Bible. John believed it. He wrote it, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The apostle Paul taught it, Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it is this claim that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Other religions teach that through self-sacrifice or hard work, we can pay our debt. Jesus taught that only God can do that for us. And then he went ahead and did it by bearing the full horror of the consequences of our sin on the cross. And that is why the story of the prodigal son is so radical. The son, having sinned against his father, finally comes to his senses and destitute, having blown all of the father's money, he plans to return to the father 
admit his sins and beg just to be allowed to be put to work like one of the hired men on his father's property. He wants to work to pay off his debt. Instead, most of you know the story, while he was still a long way off, the father sees him coming and filled with compassion runs to embrace him. The son gets his confession out, but before he can even get to the request about being allowed to work off his debt like a hired man, the father is bringing out the best robe and putting it on his back. He's putting a signet ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet and he's ordering that the fattened calf be killed, that they might have a celebratory feast. Everything that the father does indicates that the son is fully restored in his relationship with the father. And that restoration happens not through any effort of the son, but through the grace of the father who receives him. And it is that point right there, that act of grace by the father, that marks Christianity as different from other religions. Christianity is radically different from other religions because Jesus is the only one who claimed to be God in human form and he alone claims to be the source of salvation. And the truth of that claim is evidenced in his resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. Make sure that you do. The gate may be small and the road to life narrow, but the invitation is to all. It's all inclusive. And you already know the way. I am the way, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father God, we thank you for these great truths in your word. We thank you for that image of the Father watching, waiting for the Son to return and then running full of compassion to embrace him. Father, this morning I want to pray for those who are listening and perhaps aren't quite sure whether they've found the narrow gate or whether they're walking on the narrow road. For these dear ones, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of the truth of your claims and of their need for you. Bless them, we pray, pray Lord. Amen. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith and may his presence in your life be ever and always a reminder to you of just how much you are loved by the Father.